Resilience 2100, Tools for Navigating Change in the 21st Century. Feeling the loss. And feeling the, uh, the pain. sense of desperation. Um, yeah, the, the hunger, because they, they didn't have food. It was, it was by far the most difficult uh, deployment, and uh, yeah, I was ready to come home. You're listening to Resilience 2100. I'm your host, Steve Mottemeyer. Today's guest is Lars Watson, a mediator and peacemaker who travels to disaster areas to help the teams engaged in disaster response and recovery. Lars just spent two months in Puerto Rico where the damage and disruption of hurricanes Irma and Maria remain widespread. I started the interview by asking Lars about resilience. I used to think about resilience as returning to some golden mean or some homeostasis and you know, a system returning to some balance. However, the, the world's always changing. Our, our culture's always changing. So, so what does resilience mean when, when you have uh, change that's constantly happening, when there's, when there's a, this impermanence? I just spent two months in Puerto Rico uh, working on uh, disaster recovery, disaster, disaster response, actually. Um, there is a culture that uh, is under extreme stress for, as a result of, the, of uh, hurricanes Irma and Maria. And yet there's a real sense of community there that I think will serve that culture well. And what I saw were people who, though they're stressed and struggling, they're finding a path. They're finding a path to do that. And there's this, a real strength there. And I think it has to do with the folks that are finding that path are people who are not victims. Oftentimes, when you go in with disaster response, you go in as a rescuer. And there's a whole piece, and this, this comes back to my mediation piece, and it has to do with a person feels like 
they're a victim and someone comes in and is the rescuer. So there's a triangle. It's called the Cartman Drama Triangle. And part of being effective is to shift from being a rescuer to being a coach. If you're a rescuer, you're, you're, you've got the power. You're going to come in and you're just going to fix it. You're going to solve it. And it doesn't do anything for the, in terms of the growth of the person that's the victim, should this happen again. However, if you go in as a coach, then the person that has experienced the disaster is able to gain additional skills, gain additional abilities, so that if it happens again, they will be prepared. Puerto Rico is going to experience this again. You know, they're going to experience hurricanes again. It's just that part of the world. What needs to happen is they need to be empowered, not uh, to, to be rescued, so that they're prepared uh, in the future. In the response or recovery phase after disaster, are there stories that people tell themselves that help them or that they, or that they, they can tap? thinking about the stories that we tell about our lives and who we are and so forth, to get to the place where they realize that, that they have some agency around how the story ends. So going forward, it's, it, there's all this stuff that's happened, some of which is good, some of which is really pretty crummy. But, you know, you have some control over uh, okay, what's the next chapter? What's the, what, how's the story going to end? Uh, and this has to do with whether you're a victim or you feel empowered. Certainly in, in Puerto Rico, it had to do with feeling a part of and an obligation to a community. People would go uh, out of their way to, to maintain that. As an example, there was a person who had been hired by FEMA to work in a disaster recovery center and was living in a place that had no water, had no electricity, yet they were committed to working 12 hours a day, six days a week, and on top of that, finding some place outside of that 12 hours to shower, get their clothes cleaned, and at the same time, living where they were living because there were elderly single women who were vulnerable. And this person went home at night and was there with his baseball bat to make sure that they were safe. One of the fabulous things about Puerto Rico was that sense of community. I arrived about a month after the hurricane happened and when the plane touched down, all the Puerto Ricans on the plane erupted into applause and cheers. They were returning to a devastated disaster zone, and they were just ecstatic. It's hard to be on the response team. It's very hard. My job was to talk about how they were doing, and I would sit there and talk to them, and they were oftentimes in tears because their job was to sit and register people and listen to these people's stories of what had happened to them. 
they who had also experienced this trauma. So oftentimes we would sit there, both of us, in tears. Just I've, I've, I haven't had that experience in a disaster, sitting there with tears running down my face talking to other employees. Uh, feeling the loss and feeling the, uh, the pain, a uh, sense of desperation. Um, yeah, the the hunger because they were they didn't have food. Uh, it was it was by far the most difficult uh, deployment, and uh, yeah, I was ready to come home. You are listening to Resilience 2100. We're talking with Lars Watson, who has just returned from deployment in Puerto Rico. I'm asking Lars, what does it take to become a mediator and peacemaker? And how do you keep your own self resilient? I realized that there were some gifts that I had as a result of my family and where I came up, how I was raised, uh, that lent themselves to mediation, that lent themselves to peacemaking, to, con- to helping other people resolve their conflicts, their inability to navigate some of these emotions. What started out as an exploration of, of myself and how I could be with regards to emotions led to my uh, realizing that conflict resolution and mediation was a calling. There was a thread there (laughs) that when I followed fed me uh, and it was something I was good at. One of the keys, I think, to my resilience is something that was totally unexpected. And it has, it has a relation to community res- resilience as well. And that has to do with vulnerability and connecting with other people that, in a personal sense, can help you when you need to be more resilient, when you need to try something different. And so the connection with other people a lot of times depends, as my experience, depends on one's willingness to be vulnerable, my willingness to be vulnerable. And, and, and that's been a kind of a lifetime challenge. And I think I'm much more willing to be vulnerable and transparent about kind of what my struggles are, what's going on, what I'm uncertain about, what's going on for me emotionally. It really gets to the soft stuff, the community, the interconnections, the relationships people have, the trust they have. That's exactly right, yeah. And those are all soft and weak. They're not strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're stronger. Yeah. For me, the image of resilience is being strong, being strong, persevering, and so forth. And this is really kind of paradoxical that there's, there's a real value in showing weakness. One of my favorite poets is a, is a Northwest poet, uh, William Stafford. 
this is one of my favorite poems. The title of it is The Way It Is. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you're pursuing. You have to explain about the thread, but it's hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. Tell me about your thread. My thread has had to do with discovering the, the gifts that I have to offer, realizing that there's, there's value in kind of taking pride in that, following uh, those gifts, in this case mediation and uh, peacemaking, uh, and learning more about myself and continuing to grow as a result of that. One of the challenges is, as the world's becoming more and more complex, is there the requisite variety? The law of requisite variety, and that is that an organism that is most likely to survive is the one that has the greatest different ways of responding in the environment. Personally, I then thought about, okay, I need to keep in mind that if something's not working, what else can I do in terms of my repertoire of ways of responding? But I've also thought of it in terms of a biological view of that. You know, I was there a month after the hurricane hit, and the, the palm trees already had fronds that were five feet long. And, you know, after six weeks, six weeks after the hurricane, there were tree ferns that already had uh, six-foot fronds that had unfurled. And it was like, wow. And these philodendron vines grown like six feet. Uh, and so, yeah, I looked around and said, the f uh, flora is coming back really rapidly, you know, and it's it's... This is, this is its environment, and it's a hurricane environment, and uh, lots of broken off, shattered trees. Uh, they are, for the most part, all coming back, and coming back really quickly. Do you have a theory of change? There is a quote uh, about change. Uh, you know, change is inevitable except from a vending machine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's what you're saying. That's the law of change. <laughs> You've been listening to Resilience 2100. I'm your host, Steve Mottemeyer. Today's guest was Lars Watson, a mediator and peacemaker who travels to disaster areas to help the teams engaged in response and recovery. To learn more and to hear other episodes of Resilience 2100, visit our website at www.resilience2100.com 
or search for Resilience 2100 at your favorite local podcast provider. Thanks, and see you next time.